You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Russia and uh, Ukraine are not particularly large suppliers of yellow cake. They do produce yellow cake, but they're not very significant in that perspective. So I don't think that'll have too much of an impact on the price. But what I think will have an impact on the overall uranium price or on the overall uranium uh, cycle is that Russia is a very, very significant enricher of uranium. I think there's a few things that it impacts. First of all, I think there's this geopolitical risk now associated with maybe the utilities obtaining their uranium from this sort of area, from Eastern Europe. How do the utilities view that now in terms of security of supply? Will they start now looking for diversification? And by diversification, I mean geographical diversification. I hope they are because that means Lotus becomes more into the picture. And I think that's a really good thing. Welcome back to Mining Stock Education. I am your host, Bill Powers, and we're checking in with one of our sponsors, Lotus Resources. And if you're not familiar with Lotus, it trades in Australia and in the States. Ticker symbol in Australia, L-O-T, and in the States, L-T-S-R-F. In short, the investment thesis surrounds bringing back in the Calicari uranium mine in Malawi back into production. This mine previously produced about 11 million ounces of U308. And so getting this mine into production, coinciding with the uranium upcycle with a low capex US $50 million proposed. That is the central thesis for the investing in this company. And Keith, welcome back onto the show. You're the managing director. And is that a good summary of why one would initially want to consider investing in your company? Bill, you nailed it absolutely perfectly, perfectly, except for one thing. It's 11 million pounds, not 11 million ounces. <laughs> Sorry, I talk about gold too much. It's pounds in yeah, uranium. It's pounds, yeah. But otherwise, that I think was a perfect summary of our project, yes. All right, let's start with market commentary. We're looking at about $49 uh, per pound uranium uh, in the spot market right now. Uh, what's driving that action right now? So there's been a substantial increase over the last four or five days. The price has moved up from about 43 to 40, uh, 43, 44 up to this $48, $49 that we're seeing today. <clears throat> I think there's two things that are driving it. I think the spot has come back very strongly into the market and they've acquired about 2 million or just over 2 million pounds over the last couple of days. And we've certainly seen that pick up, pick up the spot price. I think something else that is also going on in the background is a little bit about this Russia-Ukraine issue. And I think we're seeing a general uplift in a number of commodities. And I think the uranium price has been dragged up in that general uplift as well. But primarily spot, supported by the general uplift in uh, commodities moving forward. So we're very happy with the the uranium prices at the moment. And we have certainly seen it ourselves, and I think most of the uranium equities have seen it. We've actually seen quite a significant increase in our share price over the last few days as well, which has been fantastic for us. Do you see the conflict in Ukraine with Russia and NATO and everything that's going on there affecting the uranium price? I do. And I think I, I think this whole thing plays out in a number of different areas. I was actually having a conversation this morning with someone else about this. And we were saying, I think there's a few things that it impacts. First of all, I think there's this geopolitical risk now associated with maybe the utilities obtaining their uranium from this sort of area, from Eastern Europe. How do the utilities view that now in terms of security of supply? Will they start now looking for diversification? And by diversification, I mean geographical diversification. I hope they are because that means Lotus becomes more into the picture. And I think that's a really good thing. But maybe with something on the negative side is obviously Russia 
and their technology, and specifically Rosatom, is actually quite a, a large player in terms of the nuclear fleet construction. So how this is going to play out in the near term, I'm not too sure. But for example, there was an announcement by Finland yesterday or the day before where they have a, a, a nuclear project, a JV with Rosatom, and they've actually cancelled that project or at least have delayed it. So I think there could be some issues from that side as well. Specifically on the pricing thing, I think there's a few things to talk about. First of all, Uzbek, um, um, Russia and uh, Ukraine are not particularly large suppliers of yellow cake. They do produce yellow cake, but they're not very significant in that perspective. So I don't think that'll have too much of an impact on the price. But what I think will have an impact on the overall uranium price or on the overall uranium uh, cycle is that Russia is a very, very significant enricher of uranium. So when you're making up the fuel cells for your nuclear reactor, you take the yellow cake that mines like ourselves produce, you go through a conversion process, you then go through an enrichment process, and it's that where Russia has a very, very strong position at the moment. And prior or after the enrichment process, you then make your fuel cells. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, although in all the literature we're seeing at the moment and all the restrictions that are being placed on Russia, they're certainly not placing any restrictions on the energy side of it, and uranium has been wrapped up in that energy conversation as well. So lots of uh, things happening at the moment. So it'll be a real interesting week or two in terms of where everything settles out, I believe. But the cancellation of Nord Stream 2, I suppose, would be part of the energy impact of this conflict, right? Where the natural gas from Russia is imported into Germany and Europe? Correct. So, I mean, so that project has now been cancelled and Germany actually over the weekend has now, I wouldn't say they've reversed their decision about nuclear power, but they've certainly started to make some comments that maybe they shouldn't be shutting down their nuclear fleet in quite as rapid succession as they initially envisaged. And they might be looking to extend the operation of certain of their uh, reactors, which again is positive news, news as a uranium supplier going forward. Yeah, one of the critiques of the decisions that's being made in the EU is that they have their goals for low carbon or net neutral carbon emissions. But on a practical basis, they may not be thinking through how you're still going to heat all these homes in the winter. So nuclear, I think they're concluding, could be part of the solution here. I think if you speak to like France and you speak to Sweden and Denmark and all that stuff in Eastern Europe, that's certainly that's that's a message that's coming out. We cannot meet the goals that are required unless we have nuclear in it. And as we said, I think Germany may be starting to swing a little bit back towards that conversation as well, which is which is really good as a uranium producer. So, Keith, let's talk about how your company is seeking to contribute to the solution of nuclear energy. You put out a mineral resource estimate for your Calicary project. Walk us through this. What are some of the key highlights? So I think we've been talking a little bit about exploration for the last six months or so. So um, prior to the start of our exploration program, Calakira had a mineral resource estimate of 37.5 million pounds at around 630 ppm U308. As part of the review that we did of all the historical data that Paladin had generated when they owned the asset, we identified within the Calakira pit, let's say, or the Calakira uh, resource, potential extensions of that resource where it bleeds out of the block model and we think there's a further step out uh, opportunities there to grow the resource. So our first drill program that we did in August, September last year, we actually stepped out from the existing resource, put down a few holes, ran down our gamma tool, which is the primary tool that we use for investigating for uranium. If we saw some decent hits on that, we'd then step out another 50 meters or so. So based on the back of that program, which was about between four and 5,000 meters, we had some interesting or some really good intercepts from that. 
we made the decision to go ahead and to increase our mineral resource estimate. And there's two things that have contributed to the increase. So we've gone from 37.5 million pounds to 46.3 million pounds, which is around a 23% increase. A part of that, probably two to three million pounds from that increase, came from our exploration program. But as part of the process of going through the mineral resource estimate, we started having a look at our economic cutoff grades for our uh, for the pits as well. And originally, in the historic resource in the 37.5 million pound one, we had a 300 ppm cutoff. Now, when we start looking at where the spot price is today, and we also talk about how things like ore sourcing can impact the way that we're going to approach our mining and how it influences our costs going forward. Once we started to put the ore sorting and the new prices into our models, we actually saw we could drop that economic cutoff grade from 300 down to 200 ppm. So this new mineral resource estimate that we have out there has this lower cutoff grade associated with it. And probably about six or so million pounds comes from the, drop off, from the dropping of the cutoff grade. So that's a huge improvement. A couple of questions I want to ask you about the ore sorter, but first about the pit design. Are you going to have to apply for a new permit because you have a lot of permits in place uh, with the bigger conceptualized pit? No, we don't have to apply for any other permits. We have our existing mining license, which was granted to us last year. That's valid for 15 years, and that's all we need to do to be able to mine the pit. There are no other permits as such required specifically for mining. And this is a pit-constrained model too, which gives you more confidence, right? Uh, no, the actual resource we've quoted hasn't had a pit constraint put on it yet. That will come out of the feasibility study when we announce the reserves associated with it. So at the moment, it is an unconstrained. It's just got that cutoff grade on it. But again, uh, maybe a, a comment to make is that the Calicara deposit itself is a relatively shallow deposit. It sits on the side of a hill. So from a, um, from a strip ratio, fairly low. We're talking a strip ratio of maybe two and a half to three or something like that. So really low strip ratios and a relatively shallow deposit. We only go down to about 120 meters below surface. Now, is the metallurgy consistent with this expansion of the resource? It looks consistent? It does, yes. So we're, we're not, we haven't gone into any new zones as such, really. All we've done is we've extended out the, uh, the mineralized area by 100 meters or 150 meters on the southern periphery of the uh, mineral resource estimate. And of course, the material that has now been included as we've dropped the cutoff grade is effectively the same material. It's just got a lower grade associated with them. So you're lowering the grade because of the ore sorting technology and also because your expectation that the uranium market will strengthen. Is it those two things that allows you to do that? Correct. So when we did the, uh, the resource back in 2020, the 37.5 million pounds that we've been talking about previously, the spot price was probably sitting around the $32 to $34 per pound. As you've spoken about today, the price is sitting at $48 per pound. So that's a 50% increase in the uranium price. And we've also recognized the importance of ore sorting. And the reason why it's so important for us is that instead of doing a selective mining operation where we're targeting these high-grade blocks and then taking those out and putting those into the pit, by using ore sorting, what we can do is we can actually change over to more of a bulk mining approach. So we take up everything that's got mineralization in it now and either direct feed it to the ore sorter or put it onto a stockpile and then feed it onto the ore sorter. And we're using the ore sorting technology to select out the higher grade material and reject the gang waste. And that's a much more efficient process than selective mining. So we can put a lot more material through our plant or through the ore sorter at least and produce a material that we can feed into our main plant that is a lot more consistent in terms of its grade, but also on average a higher grade than we could from a selective mining scenario. 
So how can we have confidence in this technology? Is this being employed at any uranium mines in such a fashion as you propose already? So it's, it's not implemented at any uranium plants at the moment, although there are a number of companies that are looking at it. But it has been implemented successfully on a number of operations here in Western Australia. It's been implemented on a number of uh, iron ore mines, a number of gold operations, manganese operations, and nickel operations as well. Now, one of the things that I think is really important to talk about is when the um, uranium uh, companies were looking at this a few years ago, the sensor that they were looking at to do the detection of the rock that had the uranium compared to a rock that had no uranium was effectively a gamma probe. And that is a very slow process in terms of sending the rays, recovering them, calculating what's not, uh, what's ore and what's not ore. What we're using as a sensor is actually a color sensor. So this is exactly the same sensor that the nickel people are using, the iron ore people are using, the manganese people are using, and the gold people are using. And this has a very rapid turnaround time in terms of identifying the issues. So we can pick up very, very quickly what is ore and what is waste, and therefore you can put a lot more tons through the machine than what people were considering about a few years ago. And I think the Calacara ore itself actually is very well uh, positioned or very well suited to ore sorting because our high-grade ores are generally darker in colour and our gang minerals or our low-grade materials are much lighter in colour. So a colour sensor makes perfect sense, sense for us in, um, in this perspective. And we've done four, five now series or sets of tests with Steinart, which is the company that we want to use, and we have another program set up with them that is going to cover a further range of materials as well. So by the time we come up with a feasibility study, we probably would have tested seven or eight different material types, we would have tested a whole range of grades, we would have tested a whole range of particle sizes as well. So we'll be very, very confident that the ore sorter works on our material. And, the, and an additional thing is that the testing that we do with Steinart is actually done in a commercial scale unit. So we're not using a bench scale unit or anything like that. So there's no scale-up factors associated with it. The unit that we're using for the test work is effectively the same unit that we're going to be installing on site. So I think that gives us an, um, an added layer of um, you know, confidence in moving forward. And Keith, I believe I've heard you said you're looking at two units and the installed price is somewhere around 12 million US. That's correct. So we spoke originally about one unit. Because we've been so successful with our results and it's allowed us to change our approach to our mining, I think we're going to end up installing two units. Each of them are circa $3 million each. And then if you look at the uh, installation costs on top of that, you can effectively double the cost and that'll be the $12 million that we've spoken about here. Since you're moving towards a feasibility study this year, in terms of the exploration potential around the conceptualized pit, are you going to leave that for another time because you've showed the market there is expansion potential and just focus on the resource you have now for the sake of this uh, economic study? Correct. So for the feasibility study, we're going to be using the existing resource that we've just announced. From an exploration potential, where we're focused at the moment is the Livingstonia tenements, which were the new tenements we acquired last year. We've completed a drill program down there. We've just moved on to another area called Chalumba, which is just north, uh, just to the north of Livingstonia. The drill rig is on there at the moment turning. And, we're, and our exploration, at least for the next month or two, will be focused in those areas. And then I think we're going to pull back from our exploration for a while, complete the feasibility study, start talking about offtakes, start talking about financing things, and then maybe have a look at some more exploration going forward. At those regional targets, how far away are they from the mill? 
So Livingstonia is about 90 kilometers and Chilumba is probably 75 kilometers or so away. So again, when we look at it, how would we actually recover the uranium from those ore bodies? Well, we put ore sorting down at the pit. So we'd have an open cut operation there probably with a, um, with a crusher, run the material through the ore sorter. The material comes from the same source as the calicara, so it's located within sandstones. So we expect the ore sorter to work down there as well. Produce a concentrate from the ore sorter, truck that to site and treat it a calicara would be our approach to that. Okay. And uh, so it's a hub and spoke model essentially, right? Right. That- Great. All right. And then uh, in terms of your feasibility study, which you're doing, I've been told by people more experienced and smarter than myself, Bill, you can't trust a feasibility study due to the higher cost of inflation and prices increasing 15% or more annually. When you get that objection from investors, how do you answer it? So I suppose one of the things, and it is a question we do get asked, we are going through a high inflation period at the moment. And I think everyone recognizes that. So we're actually, when we're going out for our costs and all that kind of stuff, obviously the suppliers and all that have already taken into account some of these uh, inflations that are um, that are occurring at the moment. So we would expect to have a realistic cost delivered in June or July of this year that represents the current market. Now, obviously, we are having conversations with some of them because we do recognize things that maybe like reagents, um, such as sulfur that we might be buying or hydrogen peroxide, We can appreciate for a first fill that it's going to be impacted by inflation and impacted by logistics and all that, but also asking them questions, well, what do they think about in a year's time, two years' time or so? Do they think there's going to be a reduction in terms of their logistic costs associated with it, and how can we capture those types of benefits in our our feasibility study? I think one of the things that is really important and one of the things why we really like this project is you're right, that when you're doing a, a feasibility study on a greenfield project and all that kind of stuff, the level of accuracy is about 10 to 15% or something like that. But remember, when we're doing our feasibility study and even when we did our scoping study uh, uh, last year, some of the data that we're using in our feasibility study is based on real operating data. The plant operated for five years. We have what the reagent consumptions were. We know what the maintenance costs were. We know what the power draw was. We know what the availability of the plant was and all that kind of stuff. So some of those key numbers that when you're doing a greenfield project, you have to assume or use you know, from another project or something like that, we're going into our database and we're picking the real numbers that Calicara actually operated at and using those in our feasibility study. And I think that gives us more confidence in our numbers moving forward. And you propose to ship this concentrate to North America too, right? So are you investigating, I mean, shipping costs have gone up dramatically in the last two years as well. So we're looking at the three options. We've decided to look at both sending it to North America, effectively to uh, Metropolis, to uh, the Honeywell um, conversion facilities. We're also looking at sending it to uh, Cameco's ones in Canada and also to Arano's in France as well. So we've approached a, logis- a logistics company that specializes in the movement of things like yellow cake around the world. And they are busy at the moment in terms of producing a study for us that will tell us the best shipping routes for us to take, as well as the costs associated with shipping the yellow cake to those three individual areas. Because we know when we go into contracts with our various utilities, we may be asked to send it to any one of those conversion facilities. So we're working with our logistics provider already, and they'll be providing a, um, an updated cost estimate for that part of the uh, cost. With proposed uh, recommencing production in 18 to 24 months, are you beginning to engage potential personnel that will run the mine at this point? 
We started that conversation. We haven't actually employed anyone yet. Uh, no, sorry, I'll take that back. We've employed um, our new CFOs. Just come on. He started in February. So we brought a new CFO online who's got uh, production experience. We've brought him on, um, on board early on to help us build up our team. But he's been our first appointment really from a production perspective. We're going to start looking after we've completed the feasibility study in terms of obviously the feasibility study is going to give us the organogram that we need. We'll then identify the core people that are within that organogram and start the process of, um, of uh, hiring those people. You hired a consultant to engage the utilities. How are those talks going? Can you give us any update? Yeah, so um, Dr. Robert Rich has been in communication with all of the major utilities in North America. He attended the uh, Uranium Conference in Savannah last year and attended the Uranium Conference in Washington in January of this year as well. So we've been in communication with probably the top eight or maybe nine or so utilities. We've been able to tell them the story about Lotus tell them about Calacara coming back online again, give them an indication of our timing and all that. And they are certainly interested in talking to us. Uh, as part of that process, we've been put onto the request for proposal list for all of those utilities. So when they go out and uh, for tender on their RFPs, we're starting to see that information now and we have the ability to participate in those tenders if we so wish. However, ultimately, I think we would like to participate in off-market conversations with these various utilities. I think that's where we can add the most value to it. And that's something we'll be able to do after we've completed our feasibility study. So once we've confirmed our pricing and once we've confirmed our production schedules, I think we'll be in a much better, better position to go and sit in front of those utilities and give them a real firm information in terms of how Calacare is going to restart back up again. So potentially you'd have price uh, contracts by the end of this year if you're going to produce a feasibility study within the next six months. Yeah, so the feasibility study will come out with, as we said, June or July. I think we'll then enter into some negotiations around financing, whether that be equity or debt. If we do go down the path of the debt financing, they will be looking for us to have contracts in place, and that'll be part of the process then as well. So assuming that the uranium price increases during the year, which based on the last couple of days it has done, we could be, by the end of this year, in a position to make a final investment decision because we have financing in place and because we have a sufficient contracts in place that would allow us to make the decision to restart. And per our previous discussions, you would lock in what you need to secure the CapEx to make sure you're profitable, but also leave commodity upside for your investors as well. Correct. Yep. That's the way that we would approach it. So your treasury and burn rate, can you review that with us, please? Uh, $13 million, and I'm talking Australian dollars now, at the end of the December quarter. During the last nine quarters, I think our burn rate has been almost nothing because we have had a lot of option money that has come in or warrant money that has come in. We also sold the Hylia asset, if you remember, last year. That brought in about $1.8 million for us. So we haven't really burnt a lot of cash as of the last nine months or so. Going forward, we see the $13 million that we have been sufficient to take us into 2023. So it's going to cover all of our exploration work. It's going to cover our study work, our care and maintenance activities, and the completion of our feasibility study as well. You've been listening to Keith Bowes. He's the Managing Director of Lotus Resources, website lotusresources.com. Dot .au, put in the AU because if you just do go.com, it's actually a coal company. So you want to hit that dot .au at the end. Ticker symbol again in Australia, L-O-T, and in the States, L-T-S-R-F. Keith, thanks for joining me on today's show. Well, thanks very much. That was great.
Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts it might cost fifty or $100,000, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility, certainly not the certainty, but the possibility of 10-for-1 returns as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector and it's so volatile that either you could really, you could do really, really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident. And just do your work as best you can. Do your very best. But don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal legal or investment advice or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on miningstockeducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.